All right, last week we finished up a series on the New Testament book of Philippians. Next week is Easter, and that's going to be followed by an eight-week sermon series titled Law and Gospels. So we typically are preaching through books of the Bible, uh, but we're going to do a series here that's going to be a bit more topical. Uh, But for today, we've got a regular practice here at Center Church to revisit our three core values, because we believe that we need reminders. The Bible makes it clear we forget. We're professional forgetters. That's what the human race is. We forget things all the time. So we need reminders. So our three core values here at Center Church are gospel, community, and mission. Okay, so if you look at this graphic, we would say, based on this, that the gospel is simply the point of everything that we do. Okay, so gospel means good news, all right? So when we use the word gospel, we're talking about the good news of Jesus, his life, death, and his resurrection. Now there's a ton wrapped up in this, in the gospel, which is why we focus on it every week. The gospel is what we center on all the time. It is the beginning and the end of everything that we do. And so then, looking at this graphic, the gospel is the point of everything we do, and out of the gospel, then it creates community, and it compels mission. Now, the intention is that values are valued, right? They're not simply something that we just talk about, or something that we just reference when it's convenient. The fact that they are values means that they should be seen, They should be experienced. They should be aspired after. They should be guiding everything that we do. And the hope is these values aren't just something an organization just feels strongly about the organization itself, but for us as individuals, as we become a part of Center Church, as you as a person becomes a part of Center Church and understanding that churches are people, not buildings— that you and your lives would begin to value these values as well. Because these are great values to hold on to, to let guide your life as an individual as well. Okay, so today we're going to look at our core value of community. Community emphasizes our responsibility to one another as Jesus' church. Okay? As we, if we would overemphasize this value, our church will turn into nothing more than a country club. It'll become an exclusive group that is hard to break into, and, and we'll end up putting up paintings of people who've done the most for our organization. So, community needs to be valued, but we try and create tension by also emphasizing an external focus through our core value of mission. There's got to be tension here, right? Inward focus to care for one another. This is our core value of community. But then external focus as well. That's our core value of mission. But today, we're going to look more closely at community. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read one verse. That's all we're looking at today, one verse. I'm going to give a lengthy qualifier, and then we will work through that one verse. So let me read this verse before we jump into this. And we, being the authors, Paul, Timothy, and such, we urge you, brothers and sisters, the church in Thessalonica, admonish the idle, 
encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for this verse. I pray that you would give us good news out of this verse, that we wouldn't just hear mere instructions, but that we would hear good news. So help us to see, hear, be changed by Jesus in these moments together. In your name I pray, amen. Okay, so I want to begin by providing somewhat of a lengthy qualification here. This verse is heavy on instruction, right? On things the reader is supposed to do. Now I would say that without context, this verse, for one, it's vague, but it can also be dangerous. On its own, this verse will cause us to begin to think that the Christian life is all about what we do, or what we need to do, or what we're not doing good enough. And I would say that's a big lie. So what I want to do is I want to provide a little bit of context around this verse. Okay, so I want to go back. We could go back to numerous places throughout this book, but I want to go back five verses prior to this and read this verse. The authors there write, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so God's intention is not to be angry, not to pour out wrath or anger against sinners, which all of us are. Okay, rather, God has provided everything necessary so sinners can be saved from their sin, from God's wrath, from hell, from death itself. But salvation is not found within us. This verse is saying salvation is found outside of us. Specifically, it's found in Jesus. Okay, so salvation is not an issue of discipline. Salvation is not an issue of hard work. It's a matter of trust. Trusting in the Savior the saving one who is Jesus. Because Jesus has come to us. Jesus, because Jesus has loved us when we didn't deserve it. Because Jesus died on a cross for our sin. Because Jesus suffered for us. Because Jesus offers hope beyond this life. We now have something to live for today. Something more than a paycheck. Something more than being cool in the eyes of our peers. We have something much more to live for. And in this, then, Jesus becomes the orienting reality in all of our life. Jesus is the bullseye in all of this. He makes things meaningful. He provides hope for our everyday life. He restores brokenness. So then Jesus... His salvation, His grace is the foundation for all of the imperatives spoken in the verse we're looking at today. These things are instructed, that they're instructions given to us to do, but it's flowing out of what Jesus has already done for us, for humanity. While on earth, Jesus admonished the idol. Even still today, he continues to patiently encourage the faint-hearted and to help the weak. 
So our doing these things that we're going to read about in this verse is simply a confirmation that we are trusting in Jesus. Our obedience of God's instruction never earns us greater approval. We've got to understand this. For us to follow God's commands never means God likes us, loves us more than we did, than he did before. Okay? Our obedience is intended to display the fact that God has already approved us. He approved us when we were sinners, when we were disobeying. And that's what makes salvation so great. So we are trusting in Jesus' salvation, not in our own works. And in this, and as we trust in Jesus' salvation, as we live life in this way, we begin to point people to the Savior, to Jesus himself. Now this is important that we see Jesus as the bullseye, as the foundation. Because if there's no Jesus, all of our following instructions will eventually become trite. It will eventually become hollow. If there's no Jesus, why do we do this? Why do we follow these instructions? Ultimately, the reason we would do it is to make ourselves look better, to gain something selfishly for ourselves. And and yes, there's good-hearted people. There's kind non-Christians. They do good things, right? But the Bible teaches that ultimately, everyone will do those things for self-motivated reasons, eventually, eventually. Whether it's to get a pat on the back, whether it's to get a pay raise, or whatever it might be, we will do things for selfish reasons. Now, let me illustrate this. If there's no Jesus, what do we say to a 42-year-old who's told he has incurable cancer? Which has been our reality for the last couple of years. It'll be all right. Lying is not going to help that situation right? Just stay positive. You can do this. Faint-hearted people don't need something else to do. The gospel is good news. It's good news. It's something that we believe. We've got to understand the gospel has goodness attached to it, okay? So we believe it. We don't do the gospel. We believe the gospel. So Jesus is essential, okay? Jesus is essential. He's the underpinning, the foundation for all of the instructions, and we would say for all of life. He's what gives meaning in life. So to go back to an earlier point, the gospel forms us in this way. As we look at and believe Jesus, we become more like him. The following instructions we're about to consider are important because they're addressed in and answered through the gospel. So as we begin to look at this verse, let's keep in mind this idea. The gospel creates community. The gospel is what gives community meaning, substance. Okay? All right. Verse 14 then. 
It begins with a call for urgency. Now, these are not mundane instructions that we're reading, that we can just kind of choose whether we want to take it or leave it. You know, maybe today, I, I really don't want to encourage somebody. No, the, these are being spoken with urgency for the reader. So readers, and we would say us, are being urged, compelled, pushed to fully engage in this way. This is what it means to trust in Jesus, what follows. Okay, and then we got to be clear here. This isn't a word just for pastors or, or even just for leaders in the church. This is a call for all of us. Okay, so this is talking about brothers and sisters. That's the church. That's all of us together. We are family. What's being communicated here sounds much like what should happen in a family. And it's really interesting, in this section of 1 Thessalonians 5, the church is repeatedly addressed, five times in fact, it's addressed as family. That's how the church is talked about here. And we, we know throughout the Bible this is how the church is talked about, as family. Okay? But it's really stark here in this section. Okay, so let's, let's jump into these specific instructions then. And as we look at these three types of situations that we're going to see, I want to give one word of caution here as we begin. We can at times view people in these situations as the problem children of the church. The idle are lazy. They just don't get it. The faint-hearted need encouragement. I don't have time to give. The weak need help. That maybe I just don't want to give. Here's the deal. We will all find ourselves in these positions. We have. We will. When we are near people in these positions, we must be reminded of our own frailty, neediness before God. We are the spiritually idle, the spiritually weak, the spiritually faint-hearted. Jesus has been there in our time of need. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. 2 Corinthians 1.4 says, Jesus comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. So if you find yourself not weak, not faint-hearted, today you have been comforted in some way so that you can comfort the faint-hearted, so that you can comfort the weak, so that you can be there in some meaningful way. And, and the intention here is that comfort is comfort. Comfort is not like this neutral thing or a negative thing, right? Comfort is positive. We pursue comfort in our lives without even thinking about it, right? Because it's good. It's like a warm blanket on a cold day. We like it. So comfort's a good thing. We've been comforted. We've been given a good thing so that those who are not experiencing the good thing can be given the good thing through us. And then we don't do that begrudgingly, right? Like it was comfort given to us. So we should want to share that with other people. We know how we have been comforted. 
how this good gift has been kindness to us. And if we understand how good grace really is, how good God's comfort really is, we'll want others to encounter that as well. So what's being talked about in these verses is not a transaction. God is not transactional. It's grace. It's kindness. Okay, so the first one, admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. Idol can also be translated undisciplined or disorderly here. So it can speak to laziness. Specifically, though, this is speaking to idleness or laziness or a lack of discipline, spiritually speaking. So in terms of faith, right? So idleness regarding faith in Jesus. So this doesn't primarily have in mind someone who is skipping their gym workouts. Though I would admit, like, that could be a symptom of what's going on here, right? But it's speaking about this lack of centering one's life on Jesus. We talk often about how the Bible provides us physical examples that then point us to greater spiritual realities. Physical is always pointing us to something greater. And that greater reality is our spiritual reality. This ties back to what we were talking about last week, in that Jesus has solved our greatest problem, right? What is our greatest problem? Sin. It's spiritual. It's not physical. Our greatest problem is not physical. And that doesn't mean that we don't face significant hurdles physically. We do. But this just speaks to the greatness of sin and the greatness of our problem. Like, our sin problem is much greater than our physical problems. So the physical is there to point us to the greater spiritual realities. And so it's saying these individuals should be admonished. Now, we tend to think of this word, admonish, I think, probably negatively. Like, we're told to scold others, right? No one wants to scold someone else, especially when we talk about adult to adult, right? No one wants to do that. Given the context, a strong word may be necessary here, but I think of this in terms more so as like a caution of a warning being given to someone. I think this is really normative in life. It may, maybe it's not in your life, but it is in my life. Like my wife will oftentimes, and I'm not saying this in a negative way, she'll oftentimes give me warnings as a way to help me. Like be careful about the tone of your voice as you're talking to the kids, right? Be careful, or, or be, be careful about this idea, like, do you really want to eat that piece of pie right before dinner? Like, like that's, a, that's a good warning, that she, because I'm modeling something to my kids, right? I come up from work, chips, nah, I just want to go, like, get after the snacks, right? And she gives me these kind words of warning, because it's oftentimes not the best thing. But if we care enough to speak up on lesser matters, how much more should we be willing to graciously ask a question to our brothers and sisters in Jesus? This book of 1 Thessalonians, it's bookended by grace. So Paul is talking about grace at the beginning and the end. This is the same thing we talked about with the book of Philippians last week as well, right? So we know, admonish the idol is not just like cracking a whip on somebody, 
Like, this is intended to be done graciously as well. So asking hard questions, but doing it graciously. And just before this, there was an encouragement by the authors to build one another up and to be at peace among yourselves. Right? So asking hard questions or disagreeing with somebody in kind ways. This is not how our culture functions right now, right? Like you've got to agree with someone full on, 10 out, 10 out of 10 in every way, or like you can't be friends anymore. You can't disagree about stuff. But that's not how we function as the church. We should be willing to ask hard questions, to push into things as a way to care for one another. So this is not inflammatory. This is loving. This is intended to be a way in which we show love for each other. And why, why would Paul put so much emphasis on this? Why does it matter that we're not idle? Because this is a life or death issue, right? This is heaven or hell issue. This isn't, ah, they're grumpy today, or ah, they're not caring about Jesus. That's a big deal. And so we've got to understand this is life or death. So Center Church, I want to implore us on this. I could point to many of you and specific examples that have been shared with me of how you have done this in the past. You heard someone say something, you either disagreed with it or you didn't understand it, and so you would go to somebody and you would ask the question. You would try to understand what exactly is going on. Where are you coming from with this? This is so great that this has happened, but it needs to happen all the more. We need to be people who care for each other in this way. Let's be known for our gracious pursuit of each other. Not our passive aggressiveness, which is what Minnesotans are usually known for, right? Let's be known for our gracious pursuit of one another. I know this involves risk, maybe awkwardness at times, but this is what it looks like for us to be in community with each other, cultivating grace. And, and let's be really clear on this. So I, I'm talking about us pursuing the spiritually idle. If you are spiritually idle, and you know that's you, I want to implore you that you don't feel like you have to hide. You can raise your hand. You can ask for help. You can pursue the help as well. The reality is, when we hide, that's going to lead to shame and greater shame. Don't hide. Don't do it. The fact that Paul's writing this and saying, pursue the idol, admonish the idol, he's saying that's unhealthy. That's really bad. If you know you're in that spot, call for help. Raise your hand. Don't be okay with it. Center Church is a safe space to ask for help. It is. Okay, admonish the idol. Secondly, encourage the faint-hearted. Previously in 1 Thessalonians, there is talk about the death of loved ones. There's talk about persecution for Christians. 
People are likely losing heart because of the troubles around them. They feel threatened. They are suffering. Life is hard. We know about these things. We know suffering. We know life is hard. We know this world is broken in serious ways. We know the trouble of this world will continue to cause people to lose heart, to lose faith. But even in this teaching, we hear there is something There is something that can encourage. There is something that stands firm in the midst of circumstances that bring trouble. And that thing is a person. And that person is Jesus. We encourage the faint-hearted, not through meaningless platitudes like, it'll be all right. That's insensitive at the end of the day. Encouragement can take many forms. It can occur through presence, just being with somebody. It can occur through thoughtfulness, a thoughtful gift, understanding, knowing other people, doing something thoughtful. Encouragement can can take the form of words, speaking words of encouragement or affirmation, understanding, empathy, when someone's going through hard things. But the intention in all of this, the encouraging the faint-hearted, is that we would embody the gospel. That we would point people ultimately to the great encourager, who is Jesus. He is the one who has overcome. Whatever the thing is that's causing someone to be faint-hearted, they probably can't scale that wall themselves. They need an overcomer. We need Jesus. He is the overcomer. Hope is found in Him. He is greater. He is enough. He is the sufficient one. So ultimately, we want to embody the gospel by loving people in a way that points them to Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, we hear a story about a father and a son. And this is how the father describes his son. He has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. The son has been like this since he was a young child. I imagine this father is faint-hearted. Deeply faint-hearted. Tired from having gone through this over and over, tired from having no solution, hopeless, wondering, did he do something that caused this? Did he sin in some way that caused his son to have to suffer in this way? Wanting to help his son, but unable, desperate. It's going to be a horrific spot to be in. He sees Jesus as healer. He calls out to Jesus, and what Jesus does is he draws near. He draws near to the Father, draws near to the Son, and he speaks words of love. He speaks words that ultimately bring healing. And we get this physical picture, right? 
but this is pointing to greater spiritual realities. Jesus speaks the word to the spiritually faint of heart so that they might find spiritual healing. We're not promised physical healing in this world, but we are offered spiritual healing. Center Church, we have people who daily feel faint-hearted. May we not let the frequency of faint-heartedness numb us to the individual pain, fatigue that's being felt by people daily. May we be people who bring the good news of the gospel, who bring gospel encouragement to people so they might find hope and life in their day of need. Third, help the weak. Physical weakness has been less of an issue over the six years of this church, simply because we're a church made up of younger folks. When you don't have 50-year-olds or anyone older than that in your church, it looks a little differently for you. But weakness has come in cancer and in other forms, for sure. And it will come increasingly. Gospel belief will compel us to help those who are in need. We need to be close enough in relationship to have awareness that this is going on and we've got to understand, it's hard to ask for help. It's hard to ask for help. I'm not saying it's okay to have that perspective, but I'm saying it is hard to ask for help. So this is a word for the weak. Don't be so proud that you're unwilling to ask for help. If you are a person who needs help, then ask. If, if we are people who know that we need help to be saved, surely we can ask for help in physical ways. But for those of us who feel strong, this is a call for us to do what Jesus has done for us. Jesus left what was comfortable. He became weak for the weak. He took on their weakness. And that's a call for us that we would embody the gospel in this way by sharing burdens, by taking on the weakness of those around us. At the end of this verse, then, there's this capstone statement. Be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. Our care for the hurting is not begrudging. Your care for the weak, for the faint-hearted, will not work ideally into your schedule. It won't. It's going to be inconvenient. Our admonishing of others is not to be done impatiently. We don't get to be like the Old Testament prophet Jonah, who was sent to Nineveh, right? He's like, God, you can go blow smoke, right? And he goes the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. Eventually, God's pursuit of him leads him to Nineveh. And the, the sermon 
that Nineveh or that Jonah preaches to Nineveh is, is basically an eight-word sermon where we find Jonah essentially reveling in Nineveh's destruction. He didn't care about them in any way. He just wanted to pronounce judgment on them. He hated them. We don't get to do that with the weak, with the idle, with the faint-hearted. We are patient because this is what we are recipients of. God has been patient with us. We have been weak. We have been lazy. But God, Psalm 145, 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is how God has dealt with you, with me. He has been patient. He does abound in steadfast love. He is slow to anger. Even the fact that any of us are taking breath right now is evidence of the fact that He is slow to anger. We are great sinners. And our sin deserves judgment. But God, being gracious, sent His Son for us. But even still, we continue in our sin, right? The Lord is gracious and merciful. Still, today, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So when we read this verse in 1 Thessalonians 5, it's easy for us to read a verse like this and feel the weight of all the ways we're failing. Or maybe to feel overwhelmed by all the things we're supposed to be doing. So I want to end by affirming two things. First of all, what we're reading here is a picture of healthy church community. These practices should not be rare within our church community. This is a mirror for us of what Jesus' church is intended to be. What we, as Jesus' local church here at Center Church, are intended to be every day. This is not just what the exceptional churches do. This is what we're called to be and to do. All of Jesus' churches are called to do this. It's a mirror. These instructions are a mirror or a diagnostic that reveals what it is that we are trusting in. Do you find yourself impatient? Then you're not trusting in Jesus, at least in that moment. You're trusting in being able to do the thing that you want to do, look at the thing on your phone, get where you want to get. That's what our impatience tells us. We're not trusting in Jesus in that moment. Trusting in Jesus looks like 1 Thessalonians 5.14. This is healthy church community, admonishing the idle, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak. This is how God designed his church to look. And to act. But Jesus doesn't call us to anything that he doesn't first give us. And he doesn't call us to anything that he, that he doesn't then empower in us as well. So I want to end with this second affirmation and our one point of gospel application. Jesus is your servant. 
Jesus is your servant. Mark 10.45 says, Jesus says there, I came not to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come so that we might serve him. You've got to understand this. Jesus did not come so that you would serve him. That's not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is he served you. This almost feels offensive at times, doesn't it? I've got to do this for God. I've got to serve him in this way. No. The point of the gospel is he serves you. The high and exalted one comes below you. He serves you because you needed it. I need it. What Jesus did is so turn the world upside down that many people cannot help then to serve him, to worship him. Because he gave his life for us. He served us in the ultimate way. The depth of his love for us is unmeasurable. If it feels like a burden to love others in this way, the key for you is not to serve others better. If it's hard for you to love and serve others, the key is not for you to white-knuckle it. What you need to do is you need to go back and be reminded of how Jesus first loved you. How he served you. And of the fact that you needed to be served. You are not enough. You are not enough. And that's good news. Jesus' love is remarkable. His willingness to help encourage us is astounding. If we're not astounded by this reality, the answer isn't for us to serve better or to serve more. We need to see again for the first time or for the thousandth time how he has shockingly offered to help us. You serving other people is not about you serving other people. It's about how Jesus has first served you. That's the story we're called to tell in our lives. Not out of duty, not out of obligation, not in a begrudging manner. We give because we've been given. We love because we have been loved. We serve because we have been served. And in this, in our serving, in our loving, in our caring, in our giving, Jesus is made much of. And his joy is made complete between the one being served and the servant themselves. So your focus should not be on serving better. Your focus must be on believing Jesus has served you sufficiently and seeing the extent to which he has served you and that his service of you has not ended when you first believed. He continues to serve you today, now, and you are completely dependent on him serving you. 
when we understand who we are. Our needs before a holy, all-powerful God and the fact that he came to address those needs provides us everything that we need, believing that will cause our community to flourish. Our community will not flourish by you thinking you have to do more and be better. Our relationship to one another will flourish as we understand rightly our relationship with Jesus, how he loves us, how he pursues us, how he lays his life down for us. That is the key to us flourishing as his people, as his church.